When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to Arguing History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today we are pleased and indeed honored to have with us Master Historian Professor Jeremy Black. Professor Black is Professor of History Emeritus at the University of Exeter. And today we're discussing the topic of her Royal Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, her life and reign. Welcome, Professor Black. Hello. Professor, what is your earliest memory of the late Queen? That's an interesting one. Um, Actually, funnily enough, she just was there, as it were, by osmosis. But what I can tell you is what happened with my son. In 1990, my son, then a little boy of three, was faced with the fact that the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, had just... Um, resigned. And he turned to my wife when a man replaced Margaret Thatcher, John Major. And he said to my wife, was a man allowed to be prime minister? Because everybody in authority, his mum, the queen, the prime minister, and the speaker of the House of Commons, who he'd seen on the television, Betty Boothroyd, were all women. And it seemed inconceivable that a man should have any power. (laughs) <laughs> That's a very interesting story. <laughs> um, on that, continuing that line, uh, are, are you what could be called a monarchist? Yes, I think that it is best for Britain to have a monarchy. I think the monarchy has served Britain very well, and I don't think a presidential system would work well here. That does not mean that I think that other states that have presidential systems should revert in some way to monarchies. Understood. Uh, How would you rate the late Queen? I think the late Queen was a very successful hereditary monarch. She was successful in all sorts of ways. First of all, basic uh, necessity for a hereditary monarch, she guaranteed the succession. She had an heir and three spares, as we would say in Britain, which was absolutely crucial. Um, Secondly, she was able to exercise her position without making monarchy a central feature of British political dissension. So there wasn't a Republican movement with any significance other than in Northern Ireland, which is a separate uh, history. And I think from that point of view, she was successful. And the grief, sadness, sense of passing that matches her departure reflects the extent to which she was variously respected, loved and admired. Did the Queen have the same exposure to state papers as her pater, King George VI, or for that matter, her grandfather, King George V? I seem to recall that while the Foreign Office distribution list had uh, the palace listed uh, under her father, 
in her reign, I do not recall that uh, the palace was listed on the foreign office distribution list. Well, I, as with all of these matters, those are things that are confidential, and I wouldn't, nor would anybody else, be in a position to tell you at the present moment. I think one could fairly say that the scale and burden of government and the uh, is much greater. Ironically, Britain is a much less powerful state, but the scale and, go- uh, and range of government is much greater. And quite frankly, there's a limit to which you would want anybody to be sent state papers. Um, I think it's reasonable to note that the Queen not only got a lot of state papers, but she was the only person that gets to meet regularly with the Prime Minister and on a one-to-one confidential basis. I mean, that's not true of any cabinet minister on that regularity. One other point I ought to make is when you asked me about monarchy, of course, What I was talking about was hereditary monarchy. I mean, you might argue that, in fact, a presidential system is simply that of an elective monarchy and has the strengths and weaknesses of an elective one as opposed to a hereditary one. An elective one means that the succession is less predictable. Nobody knows who will be elected president in the next American presidential election. In theory, it should mean that it is easier to call on the on the pool of talent in a society uh, than if you have a hereditary one. And it also means that you deal with the issue of retirement more easily in the American situation by having a provision for a maximum of two terms for a president. I mean, part of the Queen's eventual success is that she was able to continue working until just before she died. So there wasn't a period of protracted ill health physical or, as in the case of George III, mental, uh, nor was there need to debate a regency or other such matters. Um, So to that extent, chance played a large role in the Queen's, uh, as it were, uh, immediate reputation. Yeah, I believe that the advantage, at least from my perspective, of a monarchical form of government as opposed to a Republican presidential one is that, at least in the American instance, uh, the head of state is also the head of government, and that while there are some very few uh, political figures who combine combine both roles well, uh, it's rather, uh, there are not many who do so. Well, I think that's right, and in Britain, every time there is consideration in conversation or on the media about who might be a president or who might be candidates for a presidency, they are inevitably contentious. Um, And I think it's fair to say that that also serves as a warning to the hereditary monarchy that were they to be politically uh, partisan, they would rapidly have their situation compromised in what is a country that has quite uh, major political differences and divisions. Why was the Queen so enamored of the Commonwealth, particularly considering the fact that uh, such horrible characters as Idi Amin were associated with it? Well, I think that's a very reasonable point. I mean, it, it is argued, of course, that the Commonwealth gives Britain and the British monarchy more particularly a continuing global role that it would not otherwise have. But you're absolutely right. And I 
I've argued in my forthcoming book on the history of the British monarchy that actually in Britain itself, among the bulk of the population, um, interest in or support for the, com the Commonwealth is rather limited. I mean, there tends to be individual countries that people can be sympathetic to. Australia is a good example, but not necessarily the whole of the Commonwealth. Uh, who would you surmise was her favorite prime minister? Um, she said her favorite prime minister was Sir Winston Churchill, and there's no reason to believe that that wasn't the case. Uh, he played an important role, rather like Viscount Melbourne did with Queen Victoria, in helping a young woman to become uh, able to do the role. He was a kind of father figure. He had a genuine set of sense of wit and humor, a strong sense of duty. And he also was, uh, even though he was he heading for, in fact, then experienced growing health problems, he also was, by all and any standard, um, the greatest peacetime and wartime Britain of his generation. So it would be difficult not to fall into admiration for him. And who would you surmise would be her least favorite Prime Minister? Oh, Tony Blair. Not so much, you know, people usually comment on the Princess Diana thing, where obviously he, uh, he followed a rather headline-grabbing approach, but not so much for that. I think more, I think the Queen could see through that this was a man who was basically self-obsessed, um, who uh, was fixated on trivia. I mean, for example, if you look at the television images of the Queen, I don't recall ever seeing her as unhappy as she was on the ludicrous opening of the Millennium Dome, with which Mr. Blair, of course, insisted on. And he repeatedly pushed through changes, which um, the Scottish Assembly, the you know the world, sorry, the Welsh Assembly, the Scottish Parliament, which um, uh, any fool could have said and pointed out, had long-term consequences, which were. Um, potentially very troublesome. So I think uh, she could see through Blair, as unfortunately uh, much of the electorate could not. Would it be true to say that Her Majesty never went so far as to indicate a, a preference for a particular individual for a particular office, the way that her pater, His Majesty King George VI, has been alleged convinced Attlee not to name Hugh Dalton as Foreign Secretary, but instead Chancellor of the Exchequer? Well, we don't know that she did, and there's no reason to believe that she did, but it would be foolish to imagine that issues did not crop up in conversation, and I imagine she would also have had views on um, who would be, for example, High Commissioner for Australia, which might well have been issues that themselves had uh, you know a, a, a degree of significance, but yes, I mean she was a much more cautious monarch than George the Sixth, or even more George the Fifth. George the Fifth had played a very major role in uh, British politics in the early 19 teens, and then again in 1931, and. There is no evidence that the Queen played a comparable role when Britain was in crisis in the mid-1970s. 
Why was Her Majesty so popular? I think she became popular, uh, or rather re-became popular. I don't, um, I don't think that her popularity was overwhelming in the 1990s. I think, you know, she'd been popular in the 1950s, in the new Elizabethan age, in an age where there was still a lot of deference and where she was a figure of considerable glamour. She became somewhat, as it were, to some people at any rate, of less relevance in the 1960s. Um, I think what you've seen over the last 20 years is a recovery of her um, popularity, partly because of her own merits, uh, people's awareness of her sense of duty and her basic decency, and partly also because other institutions have lost reputation. And that, again, I think is an important contrast. How would you uh, surmise His Royal Highness King Charles III will do as uh, king? Well, I don't know. I mean, obviously, the initial impressions have been uh, positive. Um, he's very much... Um, come across as a somebody concerned to rule on the pattern of his mother and issues that people have alleged about his earlier behavior at a time, faddishness of some of his interests like homeopathy and a degree of petulance are not to the fore. But I don't know. And I think... He is in a very difficult position because by the very nature of things, um, the United Kingdom is now a multipolar uh, political system and he is going to have to um, face the need to discuss matters with, shall we say, the prime minister when he might feel that there are very contrary views being held in, shall we say, possibly Scotland or Wales. Uh, Professor Black, last word? Um, my last word is that the death of the Queen marks uh, the end of a life of, that was impressive both for what she did and for what she stood for. I think that she comes in the pattern of a number of other monarchs, George III, George V, George VI, very obviously, who had very strong senses of duty and commitment. She wasn't somebody who withdrew from the burdens, as Queen Victoria did for a while, nor was she somebody, as either George IV was or Edward VIII was, who had personal issues that made them in some respects unfit for their job. So I think she was very impressive. She became monarch in 1952, the very year, incidentally, in which yet another monarchy went in the case of Egypt. During her lifetime, she became an important symbol and exemplified how constitutional monarchy can work effectively. On that observation, which I would like to agree with entirely, 
I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, for being so kind as to speak with us today. You've been listening to Arguing History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black, very much. Thank you very much indeed.